Welcome to Contact High. Quick note, if you're listening to this before Friday, June 24th, when Mishkan will be hosting an outdoor Pride happy hour before our Pride-themed Shabbat service, hey, those are things that are happening. We wanted to let you know because we would love to see you there. We're also going to be in the Chicago Pride Parade on Sunday, June 26th, if you want to march with us. Look for links in the show notes. Anyway, last Friday night, Rabbi Stephen spoke with Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, the scholar-in-residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, the world's largest queer synagogue. Take it away, rabbis. So I'm super excited to be joined by Rabbi Mike Moskowitz, who is um, not only uh, an amazing educator and ally, uh, he currently serves as the scholar in residence for trans and queer Jewish studies at Congregation Beit Simchat Torah, the LGBTQ synagogue of New York City, one of the oldest and largest LGBTQ plus congregations in the world. Um, he's also an amazing colleague and friend of mine, and it is a, a delight, a delight to have you here uh, to talk a bit today about uh, in the theme of Pride Month, allyship, um, the work that you're doing, um, and maybe some things that we can be thinking about um, now that we're about halfway through this season of reflecting on um, both the uh, joys, but also the challenges that face the LGBTQ plus community. So, so welcome. Rabbi, thank you so much for having me. It is always a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Um, I would love, uh, just because I know some of your story, um, but I think most people who are, are tuning in don't necessarily know um, some of your background. If you wanted to share, how did you get into the space um, of, of thinking seriously about allyship and work with the LGBTQ plus community, in particular, um, the trans and non-binary and genderqueer communities? Yeah, sure. It certainly wasn't on the syllabus uh, in my yeshiva. I studied in, uh, in Lakewood uh, at BMG and in the Mir in Yushalayim, the two largest yeshivas in the world. Um, and they're Lithuanian, you know, right-wing yeshivas. Um, and then I was employed in New York City as a, a rabbi of, of an Orthodox synagogue. And I was doing Jewish outreach at Columbia University, employed, you know, by um, these right-wing organizations. When somebody in my family actually um, came out as trans and said, uh, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. And I was completely ill-equipped. I had no idea. I said to him, what do you mean? I know I'm a guy. How do you know that you're a guy? It's the same way. And um, I started speaking to my rabbis and it was very clear immediately that they had actually never met somebody of trans experience uh, that they knew of. And you can't answer a question in Jewish law until you understand the reality of the subject. And so I reached out to Keshet, which is a wonderful national organization out of Boston uh, and the gender studies folks at, at Columbia. And I really started to listen um, to the lived experiences and to recognize, as one student of mine who was trans at the time said, uh, no one's life is ever hypothetical. And one of the struggles as rabbis is that when we study the Talmud, everything's theoretical, right? Person gets out of jail or if you Kippur, there's only enough time to do one mitzvah. That, that person doesn't have a pulse. That person doesn't have a face. That person doesn't have a heart. And so um, when there's a person, a human being created the image of the divine, um, saying, I, I don't know where I fit in, in a tradition of gender-based spiritual practice. Um, can you help me? And I felt like, I, I want to help you, but I, have, I don't know what any of these words mean. I don't know what you're saying. I don't understand any of it. 
And um, it took a couple of weeks before I got to what I think is a relatively evolved space of, of simply knowing that I don't know. That as somebody who's cisgender, um, I, have a I have a limited awareness of gender to my body. And that space of knowing that I don't know has actually been deeply generative for me. Um, we just celebrated Shavuos and the verse says, the entire nation saw the sounds. Most people don't see the sounds. Most people don't have cystitia. Uh, but the Torah wasn't given for, for just most people. The Torah was given for the most extreme of experiences for, for all of the people. There were no margins. There were no uh, other. It was given to one person, like one heart, because uh, it was only given to the nation. And so the Torah speaks to these ideas. And so I kind of started off on the quest, um, you know, to uncover and to discover the divine will, uh, part of my theology is that the Torah is immutable and eternal and infinite. And as a result, God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai about these questions. Um, and so that's really when I when I started getting into it, it was about six years ago. Um, and it's been an incredible journey. Um, and I'm, I feel so blessed because what I've come to understand is that these experiences and even the language, which is always going to be deficient, it's never going to be as expansive as the experiences they come to describe. Uh, are not limited to LGBT experiences, but they're not even limited to the human experience. They have their source in the divine. Um, I see, you know, the, the divine revelation is God's coming out speech. Um, the first of the Ten Commandments is God letting us know who God is. And the sin of the golden calf is so horrific because just 40 days later, God's saying, I don't understand. I told you who I am. Why, why, don't, why don't you believe me? Why are you erasing my existence? As hmm. So the, the language that I think the, the queer community, particularly the gender queer community, has offered to this conversation, um, I mean, there's a way in which very selfishly, like, I feel like they've been my ally, that like they've allowed me to understand God in, in, much, in a much more holistic and, and, um, and complete way. Um, and so, you know, part of what I think we all understand about allyship is that it's awkward, not just because it's predicated on people being dehumanized and um, often being objectified, um, but it's as elusive as it is aspirational. It's so person-specific that what can be really affirming and validating and supportive to one can unfortunately be traumatic uh, and even offensive to another. And as a result, I feel like sometimes people are hesitant to, uh, and I think for me, it was a big process of like, this is not my lane. It's just, I'm a rabbi, I'm straight, I'm cis. Um, and so part of part of the process that for me is very much still ongoing is feeling a level of comfort of this is the right thing to do. And the awkwardness is less awkward than being silent uh, and complicit in perpetuating all of uh, all of the hurtful things that society supports. Hmm. You know, it's I, I absolutely just want to circle back for like 10 seconds. The, the image of 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 Shavuot, of Revelation, which we we just celebrated being God's coming out. Um, but especially, I love how you link that to, right, the sin of the golden calf was, I think, the sin that maybe a, a, a lot of us can uh, commit when somebody reveals who they are and we hold on maybe to the image, the idol of who we want them to be or who we expected them to be. And, and like, what a powerful metaphor, um, particularly yeah. around uh, many people's experience of coming out, of declaring ourselves and saying, no, this is who I am. Um, and then really struggling with family members, loved ones, friends who kind of are are having a hard time letting go um, of the image they constructed of of who they who they expected us to be. Um, I love that. I'm gonna hold. I'm holding on to that. No, that's yours. You you said it much better than I did. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, and I think one of the remarkable things too is you know you you talk about 
um, allyship being awkward because we're entering a space of, of not knowing, of, of not having maybe all the answers, of having to listen um, to people who are unlike us, um, to ask, right, what is it that you need? Because um, I don't know. Um, uh, to be in that space of, of unknowing can be really difficult. We, we, like, we like to stay in the lanes that we know well. Um, I think what's so remarkable about your story, though, is that you not only um, kind of left the lane um, that you knew so well, but you really entered um, very bravely um, a space um, of, of not knowing and of really just showing up. Um, what's, I mean, you are a deeply Jewishly motivated person. Um, so what's, what's Jewish about, about the act of allyship? Um, where, where, where in your Judaism does that, does that kind of leaving your lane to enter the space of unknowing um, and, and, uh, and showing up and, and bring your presence? Where does that come from? I love, I love the way you asked that question. You know, it's so interesting. Like, what do we know about God? What do we know about anything? You know, uh, the Kuzi writes to know God would be to be God because God is infinite. And if we could understand the infinite, we'd have ourselves be infinite. So we we attach to the belief that there is this infinite source of the universe that is good. And I, I would say like the one thing that we know about God is that God is is one. God is singular. God is echad. And that sense of unity, that sense of, of me being part of that source, that singular source, I think is what motivates me um, to care. If I want to have a relationship with God as a parent, I need to take care of all of God's children as my siblings. And when we look around the world, like this is simply not the way in which one treats family. And I think part of the destruction that we observe, you know, the last 2000 years of the temple is that we're all coming from a broken home now. Like we, because of that blatant hatred, that's it is we weren't able to coexist as a family. And so God refuses to, to kind of be at the, the head of the table at home. Um, and so a consequence of that is that, you know, we all took different parts of our tradition and historically the right took learning and the left took, you know, and feeling, and as a result, just we're all deficient. And so, there's more holiness when there's more people and there's more God when there's more unity. Um, in fact, the, the rabbis tell us again by Shavuot that it was because we were unified that God was able to reflect God's self in each one of us to give us, you know, that. So I think what, what, what draws me to allyship, which in, in Judaism, I think the Hebrew word for allies is the word chaver and chaver uh, normally we translate as friend, but it actually means to attach. If something's attached to the ground, it's mechaber lekarka. An author is a mechaber. They attach words and thoughts and ideas to paper. Um, and so that that chibor, that that connectivity, um, is part of the the, the covenants of of, uh, of arvos, where each guarantors for the other. And if somebody's not suffering, if somebody's suffering, that means that like there's an aspect of me that's suffering. And um, so a lot of it is a, is a function of networking the needs and the resources. But I think what ultimately motivates me is that I, I don't think there's a there's a more powerful or efficient or intimate way of showing God how much we care about God uh, than by taking care of, of God's creations. Mm. And you reminded me, I attended um, a Reclaim Pride uh, march this past weekend um, that was you know, focusing on, on centering some of the voices that tend to be marginalized within the LGBTQ plus community. And in particular, the focus was on trans voices and in particular on um, black and brown trans voices, particularly um, trans women um, who, who tend to, to really bear the greatest burden of, of discrimination, of hatred, of violence, um, of any element of the LGBTQ plus community. And, and the point and the point was that um, if we show up um, for and take care of 
um, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable, um, that the issues that affect them really, really affect us all. Um, and in doing the tikkun and doing the fix of, of protecting and holding and uplifting those folks, we're, you know, we're all, we're all um, beneficiaries of that. Um, uh, rather than kind of the trickle-down approach of focusing on the issues, right, that maybe only affect the most privileged or the most powerful. Um, mm-hmm. the, um, the question I had there, though, is so much of our allyship feels in this moment um, as, as reactive. Yeah. You know, we, you know, we're finding out that, um, you know, black and brown trans women are the most vulnerable in our community, and all of a sudden we're reacting to a reality that they've lived with their entire lives. Um, and I know you have some thoughts on, yeah, on the, sure. the reactivity of allyship um, and maybe maybe a, a, a better approach that we could be taking. Yeah, you know, even in English, like the, the word ally is often used like on this side being against this side. It's the ally powers. And, and um, it comes from the Latin to bind, like an alloy. But I, I think within the Jewish tradition, one of the one of the contributions it makes to the conversation is that it's meant to be restorative, that if, if we were all connected, like one person with one body, with one heart, um, it never would have gotten this bad. And so I think a restorative model we are where we are so aware of what's going on within humanity, right, within our earth, that our fingers are on the pulse all the time, that we would, we would never allow like voter suppression, mass incarceration, climate, all of the things to get to where they are right now. And then like the fact that it's shocking to us, right? That, you know, the, the average life expectancy of a, of a trans woman of color is, is so low. Like, like that, that should be shocking to us is itself a symptom of the fact that, that we are complicit in the othering because we don't even know that they exist. We didn't know that to be true. And I think what Judaism asks of us is that, that there should be no other. How can there be another, right? If, if their children are less uh, significant than our children, right? Then, 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 then we don't see them as God's children. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a great verse um, by Joseph and his brothers. The verse testifies that they, the brothers, saw him from afar and sought to do him harm. From a distance, it's much easier to dehumanize. And society tells us, right? Those, those are not your people, right? Those, those people live in a different zip code. They speak a little bit differently. They, they don't go to the same schools that you go to, right? Um, I mean, I've heard people say that the, the greatest indicator of success is it's not about the person's IQ. It's a, it's a person about a, the person's zip code, right? Like, where do you live, right? It's, you know, do you have access to, to food, right? Do you have access to basic resources? And so one of the things that's so difficult in this society is that it perpetuates these, like, a caste system and also the inability to either to even gain access to the lived experiences. And so there's no substitute for that relationship building. You know, all organizing is really reorganizing, right? And so I think part of what the ask is, is if you don't know a, a trans woman of color, right? So then like, whose fault is that, right? Like if you don't, you know, know somebody who's, you know, incarcerated right now, like, like, and, and therefore like, you don't understand how bad the system is, like whose fault, like it's, it's, it's obnoxious to ask those who are already oppressed, right? And already struggling to dig deeper, to make it easier for us to be able to understand how we shouldn't feel guilty about our lives that look so unrecognizably different. Um, and so like, if we care, right? Like just like rabbis can't answer questions until we know the reality of something, you can't be an effective uh, contributor in society, right? Um, one just easy way to think about this is that when this country was formed, the only people who had power were white men. And over time, some of that has changed. 
But like the starting point is that if you weren't that and really Christian, you, you weren't part of it. And so um, there's so much work to be done. And for people who feel like, oh, well, I've made it. I'm okay. Like, it's not about you, right? That the privilege is not something to feel um, to feel guilty or ashamed about, but it, but it, but it is a commodity. Um, and it is something that, that should make you feel encumbered to the extent that we, any of us have the ability to do something is to the extent that we're responsible. And we all have the ability to do something because God wouldn't put us in this world um, if we were extra. If, if this world didn't need us, we wouldn't be here. There's no such thing as extra people. So that's really the question. And I think that's how Hillel frames it. I'm not for myself who will be for me because nobody else is me. So part of the work of being an ally is actually like knowing what can I bring to the table? Like we are all so resourced in, in different ways of being talented and gifted and, and just in proximity to the people in our families that uh, there's a lot that we can do, but if we don't recognize our own resources and we don't recognize the needs of the moment, so then like we have nothing to work with. Yeah. You reminded me so much of, um, of a lesson that I took from our, our, our mutual colleague, uh, Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, the senior rabbi of CBST, who has so often said, right, that if you're, if you're alive at this moment, it's because you have something to bring the world um, that is needed. Um, and, and that's such, a, such an important and really radical lesson of our tradition. I, and <laughs> I apologize to the Mishkanites who've heard me say this a million times. This is one of my probably core teachings, but I think it's because it's so important, which is it's, it's amazingly radical that our tradition begins with the creation of the entire world. Um, and in that creation narrative, because so many of the other ancient Near Eastern creation narratives really focus on, on the beginning of a people, right? Babylonians, Sumerians, et cetera. But like, like our tradition, like Jews don't show up for a few chapters. Like we actually begin with everybody. And in that um, uh, kind of mythic accounting of creation, we make this incredibly radical assertion that A, we all have the same origin, you know, all human beings, and B, right, that origin is the divine image, Um you know, we had, a, we had a really great conversation around Shavuot. Um, I was challenging some, some folks to think of whether the Ten Commandments were sufficient or not. Um, and we looked at a few of the proposals, right, that the rabbis made of like kind of additional commandments. And right, one of them is, is you know, these are the generations of Adam, right? That, yeah. that um, the statement that we're all created um, from the same source, so that none of us can say, right, my ancestor is greater than your ancestor, right? So that none of us can say, you know, that I'm more worthy um, or more, um, more valuable than you, right? Because we all, we all come from the same place. Um, I think speaks really strongly to the messages that you're, that you're sharing. Absolutely. And there's just like one like super powerful observation is that when, if you look at the Genesis narrative, God created billions of, you know, bugs and, you know, each according to their own kind and billions of trees, each according to these billions of fish and all the things. Um, but when it comes to people, there aren't different kinds of people, right? There's just one person. Uh, and it's exactly to your point that we all come from the same, but, but, but there's something like that. Um, it's not just that we all come from the same, but, but we all really are the same, you know? And I think um, we're so much more similar than, uh, than we are different in any possible way. And um, I think the more that we feel that sense of responsibility, that um, I'm not okay with what's happening in, in the humanity that I am part of, right? It doesn't make a difference where it's happening. Uh, that it's happening is is disturbing. Um, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm curious um, because allyship is awkward because it it's coming to a space where we don't have the answers. 
Uh, maybe where we actually need to to give up some of our control that we're used to, uh, maybe even give up some of the privilege or the power that we're used to holding. Um, and I and I say this as a as a cisgender uh, white male um, that you know that those those spaces are not for me to center myself, um, and that can be really hard to kind of like like let go of that control and and to say like I don't know, actually I don't have the answers. Um, but another challenge of allyship is the fact that sometimes we have to sit at the table with people um, with whom we disagree, um, with people um, who maybe don't understand some of the pain or the brokenness that we carry into that space um, as Jews, um, for example. Um, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that, that kind of challenge of allyship, because we've seen so much fracturing. Um, yeah. Um, you know, even even the fact that I was at the Reclaim Pride March was because, right, there's been fracturing in the LGBTQ community around corporate sponsorship and police presence and racism and, and all really important issues. But we yeah. really like a pulling apart of coalition. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a real struggle. I mean, I had this yesterday. Uh, one of my best friends from Yeshiva was involved in, in setting up uh, in New York City an event with the governor of Florida. Uh, it was a Jewish event, and so we spoke, and there were protests. Um, and it's hard because we're supposed to love each person. Um, and when we feel this deep clarity of how wrong they are and how hurtful and harmful it is, it takes extra work to say, I don't love you less because you're actually wrong. Um, I think there's space between intention and, uh, and impact. There are people who are... Uh, as an extreme example, I mean, there are people who are homophobic because they think that God's homophobic and uh, they're not taking verses of the terrorist homophobic. So what do you want from me? Um, I think there's a unique challenge in even that extreme example of saying, you're not less human than I, just because you've, you know, you're trying to dehumanize me. Um, I'm not going to reciprocate. And I think in the last 50 years, we've seen so much greater advancement around LGBT issues as opposed to, let's say, around racial equity and equality, because when you can get to know somebody and find out they're an amazing human and then come to learn that they're trans or queer, um, so then it, it, it forces you to, um, and challenges, you know, one's own stereotypes and, and, and prejudices, where when it comes to presenting with a particular skin color, often people come with those things and never allow for it. So when we separate and we say, listen, I'm not going to be in conversation with you because you see the world differently than I. Uh, you perceive the world differently, you move the world through the world differently. We're not making it easier um, at all. And um, and there's a way in which it's it, we're just repackaging the hate, right? Um, so there, there's this great teaching um, that I have from one of my Rebbeim that the rabbis say that the order of Havdalah, the, 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 the ceremony of separation from the Sabbath to the weekday, was established in Yavna. Yavna was a city of scholars, but Yavna is also a uh, it's an anagram. It's a it's a it's a um, an acronym for Yain there Besamim, right? The order of Havdalah spells Yavna. Um, but he also wanted to say homiletically that there's an order of separation, right? A person says something that you don't like, you can't walk away. You have to like to walk away from somebody, to move away from somebody. You have to first try to engage. You know, let's grab us some coffee, let's grab a drink, right? If casually that doesn't work, so let's you know the the nair is the, the cerebral, the intellectual, the wisdom, In the world of ideas. Do you want to live in a place where like there's no room for anyone but you? Like there needs to be the diversity of humanity because uh, humanity is diverse. Anyways, the only time we can really walk away from somebody is when we can't walk any closer. Um, and it used to be that a person observed the world differently 
that was intriguing. I'm curious. I, I want to understand how, how is it you came to these conclusions. And that invited the conversation. And now it, it like precludes it. So we all have something to learn from each other. Um, and sometimes, unfortunately, the, the, the data is negative. We're seeing a lot of backsliding sliding in this country. Um, and it's really worth doing a deeper dive to understand why that is. But it's not going to get better if we disengage. It just isn't. Um, and so I think part of the framework that I find to be helpful theologically is the more difficult it is, the more uh, an act of resistance it is, right? To sit, to be at a table with people who don't want you to be there um, is itself a powerful act uh, of unity and solidarity, which is a, a, an act of resistance um, against those who are trying to other us. And I'm not willing to give up on you. And, you know, you can't feel that attitude, but you do hope that, 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 that people reciprocate. I really appreciate that framing. I love the Havdalah, um, the use of Havdalah as this, this you know, recognition of difference, but also when that accommodates, right, the both the need to engage, um, but I really appreciate what you also said, which is that sometimes separation is necessary when you can't walk any closer. And so yeah. I think that also recognizes that there are moments when um, for one's own safety, um, one's well-being, you may have to choose to distance yourself a little bit. But then when, yeah. when we are in a space where um, maybe we're uncomfortable, but not unsafe, right? That's maybe when we do lean in a bit more and say, yeah. look, I'm going to show up for this person, even though I, I maybe vehemently disagree with, with their stance. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's a good place to, to pause the, pause the conversation for now. Um, I already know having, um, spent many years working in the same building as you and sneaking down to your office to pop in for like a 10 minute chat that would then turn into like an hour and a half chat of where these conversations can go because you just, you carry so much wisdom and so much heart um, in a way that is is just a blessing to us all. But um, thank you again for joining us. Uh, it's always today. a pleasure. Um, and for sharing of yourself. And I, I wanted to leave off with a, with a small anecdote, um, which is when, when we're ordained as rabbis, we often choose um, the teacher whom we want to have lay their hands on us and kind of um, put, the, put that official stamp, if you will, right? This kind of chain of tradition that's gone all the way back, all the way back to, to Moses and Joshua um, of designating leaders in our community, um, one generation to the next. And um, uh, for those of you who don't know, I, I, chose, I chose Rabbi Mike to be, to be the person to do that for me because you really embody I think what it means to be a, a rabbi and a Jew, which is to um, to take great risks um, for standing up for what's right. Um, and I know your journey is just such a testament to that. Um, came at, at the cost of a lot, um, but um, in, in return for everything you've given, um, you've created so much space in our community for those who've, who've felt for a long time they don't have a home here. So um, what a blessing. Um, well, thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, it's been a, one of the highlights of my rabbinic career was, uh, was that moment uh, when you were on stage. And, um, and just to, yeah, just to reaffirm that the space actually belongs to you. The space belongs to people. And um, that uh, there's some pride in Judaism that needs to be reclaimed as well. So thank you again for this opportunity. And uh, it's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Shabbat Replay is a production of Mishkan Chicago. Our theme music was composed and performed by Kalman Strauss. You can always see where and when our next service will be on our calendar. There's a link in the show notes. And if you appreciated the program, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you've heard it before, but it really does help. On behalf of Team Mishkan, thank you for listening. <laughs>